Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. And Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about providing access to justice? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for a senior associate to join their TAC and work injuries team on a full-time permanent basis in their Dandong and Ringwood offices. Uh, You'll use your legal, technical knowledge and expertise to strive for fair outcomes for their clients. The role is obviously based in Melbourne, Victoria, because Danny Nong and Ringwood are in Melbourne, Victoria. And to apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive campaign and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're sticking with our theme this month of women in politics, and we're going to be speaking to the National Assistant Secretary of the Australian Labor Party, Jen Light, about um, her journey into politics. Um, and as we get ever so closer to the uh, federal election, whenever the hell that happens, uh, Jen's going to sort of shed some light on... <laughs> um, shed <laughs> shed uh, some light on uh, preparing for such a campaign. So um, look forward to that conversation uh, with Jen. She was heaps of fun. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, uh, let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. All right, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Thursday in uh, lockdown Melbourne, and uh, but it's a glorious day in Melbourne. I'm looking forward to my um, three hours of um, dedicated exercise to get out there and enjoy the sunshine. But before I do, um, I am uh, joined on the line from uh, a fellow locked down citizen from uh, Sydney, New South Wales, the National Assistant Secretary of the Australian Labor Party, Jen Light. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Um, how's your lockdown treating you? Well, we have our designated picnics now for, for fully vaccinated uh, Sydney ciders. So I did enjoy one last um, last week and it's looking like the numbers are starting to, to drop. But, you know, I think we're, we're all... We're all in the same situation, getting very used to working from home and, and facing the actual anxiety of having to go socialise now. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it, that we all become anxious about leaving our house? I found that last year, like after we finally were let out, I don't think I left the house for like two weeks before I started to wander out. Why? Yeah. I don't know. If it... And it's very exhausting going and seeing someone for a couple of hours. It's like, wow, gosh, I need a break next weekend. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we 
But I think when we did start to venture out, we had like sort of family over for Friday night dinner and someone over for Saturday lunch and then someone, and then by Sunday night, I said to my partner, I am knackered. I don't want to talk to yeah. anyone for about a month. <laughs> yeah. Strange, strange times we live in. I actually am keen to ask you before we jump into the main part of the show, um, what is the perception of what has been going on in Melbourne from outside the state of Victoria this week? It's been a weird, weird week here in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of quite surreal, um, sort of seeing everything that actually is is happening in Melbourne. Um, I mean, obviously, you guys have been locked down a lot longer for a longer period, um, but it does. It, it's it's a bit scary. It's sort of a bit bit surreal what's happening. And then you know, I feel like it's slightly ironic the fact on top of everything you had an earthquake in the midst of it all, and it's it's sort of like. <laughs> It, it was just a bit, bit, sort of. You had to to go. Did that actually happen? Um, but yeah, it, it is a bit. It's it's definitely going through a tough time at the moment. As I was making my cereal, as the, our apartment just started to shudder, and I was going, I knew, for some reason I just knew straight away. I just went, "Oh, you're effing kidding me!" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "No way." <laughs> Oh, anyway, and then I live in the city, so just the constant buzz of choppers flying over the top uh, yeah. of our of the buildings for the last three days is actually strange. I can't hear them now, and I've deliberately stayed off Twitter today because I just I was getting you know it was too real. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't know what's happening today, but certainly the last three days preceding have been uh, just this buzz of choppers, police sirens going off all the time. Every now and then, sort of hearing people chanting. You know, it's it feels um, like you're watching a uh, a TV drama of New York in the 1980s or something. It's, um, anyway, strange. Yeah, it's a bit surreal. Yeah, that's the word, isn't it? All right. <laughs> All right, enough of, about that. Let's talk about some positive things. Um, now, uh, we're sort of rounding off our month of, um, I guess, the theme of this month's um, shows on Social Democratic has been focusing on women in politics and in the different parts of the industry, the media, uh, digital media, um, public office. We had Terry Butler on last week. Um, and uh, now we're focusing on, I guess, organising and the party, administrivia, well, I don't know what... the thing Machinery is, yeah, is exactly. what I call it. Yeah. yeah, thank you. The things that you and I have, <laughs> from one former assistant secretary to another, how do you describe what we, what we, what we do or did? Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to get on the show. But obviously before we sort of talk about more contemporary stuff, I, I, you know, I think it's really interesting to know about your journey into politics you know, why, how, did, how the hell did you get involved in <laughs> politics? You know, what were the things in your earlier years that shaped your values and what was important to you? Um, I think there's probably a couple of elements. Uh, in terms of actually joining the Labor Party, I, I joined pretty stereotypically for an 18-year-old at Sydney Uni O Week and signed up to the the Labor Club and got involved in Young Labor um, and, you know, did student politics and um, and loved all that. But I guess in terms of what got me there, I grew up in a very staunch Labor household um, and sort of had uh, family very involved in the party. So my sister actually worked for the New South Wales Labor Party, uh, was the first female country organiser and um, uh, then worked as the communications officer or I think that she's much older than me so she's about 20 years older than me so as she went through her journey I sort of was dragged around uh, to marches and handing out and spent my school holidays in 
Sussex Street because both my parents were working. Um, and then my mum was very involved in the party and handed out, you know, ran the local booth. She's now the, the president of the the FEC in our, our area um, in, in Tony Burke's electorate. Um, so I sort of got very much brought up in it. Um, but then I guess in terms of the values element, um, there's probably two two strong elements. One is um, uh, I, you know, I have a brother who has very severe disabilities and requires 24-hour support um, and grew up with my mother constantly campaigning um, around sort of uh, equality for Australians living with disabilities, making sure that he could have as normal of a life as as the rest of her her four other children um, and she was quite an advocate she was on the chair of campaign uh, of family advocacy which is sort of a family um uh, families with people with disabilities and and was constantly meeting with MPs and I remember she went with Bill Shorten when he was the Minister for Disabilities prior to the NDIS. So that sort of, that streamed a, a strong sense of kind of social justice and, and equality. Um, and then also uh, I, when I was, I grew up especially around the time of um, reconciliation or sort of when, when, uh, and when John Howard refused to say sorry, um, and so the inequality around our own, you know, Indigenous Australian population, I was very lucky to be able to, when I was in year nine, I think, go to Central Australia um, and live with the Pichinjara people for about two weeks and sort of really have an immersion experience um, and sort of both see the amazing culture um, uh, and way of life, but also the, the really uh, drastic inequality in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, access to, to fresh food, vegetables and, and sort of, so that kind of, that social justice element kind of led me, I guess, my values, but then at the same time had this in-depth uh, investment in the in the Labor Party growing up anyway. How did you come to uh, the, the program, the, your, your school in, in, in year nine? Going yeah. To, was, how, did that, how did that happen? I was very lucky. So I went to a, a when. Our principal was actually the chair of Reconciliation Australia. She was a, it's a, it was a sort of Sabina, a Catholic school in, in Sydney, um, in Strathfield. And um, so all through our schooling, like we would have a, um, a smoke ceremony at the start of every year, um, any sort of new building, there'd be a big ceremony. We had my Auntie Ali was sort of our Indigenous elder who constantly engaged with us and there was a huge education program. And as part of that, they had a, an immersion trip. So you had to apply to go on it um, and uh, sort of put in a submission of what, why you wanted to go, what you'd get out of it. Um, but it was an, still to the date one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. And so what, why did you want to go? What did, why did you say that you wanted to attend this? I think it's probably the start you know, the fact that we, I had been brought up really understanding, as I said, I have this vivid memory of, of marching across Anzac Bridge in Sydney, um, you know, demanding John Howard to say sorry. And um, this real education of the the traumas of, of our part, you know, of, of Australia's past and how everything came about and also... Um, but also we we learnt so much about the culture of um, Australia's Indigenous population of the at school. We learned about the song lines, about sort of the dream time and, and the the in-depth um, 
uh, richness and, and connection to the land. And I just was very, I think, both fascinated with the culture, but also really um, affected by how we could have a poppy, you know, our, our Indigenous population, the people living in, you know, it's their land for over 40,000 years and how we um, very quickly changed the, the whole narrative. Um, and I think as a, as a kid that always quite, a, you know, I found it very interesting. I loved history. And so there's probably, um, it, I, I could just see the, the inequality in it and just wanted to, to also then just experience what I mean, there's a very difference. There's a difference between you know we've had there's a lot of um, of the indigenous population live in the cities and live in Sydney, but but in 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 on their land, how how they live, um, I was very very fascinated by. My uh, follow up question uh, to the sort of the, your opening sort of um, comments about your family was going to be so why did you decide the Labor Party was the party you wanted to pursue? <laughs> I, I'm starting to wonder if you had a choice. But now I think about it, though, there, there are moments where you've seen uh, the children of um, parents who rebel against their parents, right? Like, I mean, half of the trots that you knew at uni, all their mum and dad were basically Tories that worked for BHB. Like, they're, they're, yeah. So I, I actually have a funny on that. I have a vivid memory when I was about in year 10 of, of essentially saying, I'm going to join the Greens. You know, this is – and. And to be honest, I think it was um, it was same same time as a lot of this asylum CK issues and detention centres were happening, and and I remember having very vivid discussions with my mother, going, "I'm joining the Greens. This isn't happening." But then, I think at the same time, I came. I remember the actual the the absolute joy when uh, we won in 2007. We had a big party, and I had my Kevin 07 shirt. And um, and then then even when Julia Gillard became prime minister, that was a huge sort of moment. I you know very vividly remember that happening. And then when she formed government, I remember I was in year twelve. I remember where I was at school, and I'd heard that she'd finally been able to form government, and just the absolute joy that was. And and I think having her as prime minister when I was in those final years of school and starting uni was probably really impactful to sort of as a woman sees, I don't think I intentionally noted it anything, but I think it made it, you know, yep. I don't know, drew me towards it. You know, listening to you talk about that, it kind of, I'm obviously a couple of generations older than you and Paul Keating for me was the, I guess the Julia Gillard for you, right? Yeah. Um, the reason why I joined the Labor Party was because of Paul Keating. Um, the 1993 election, I, I was in year 11, I think, or year 12, and uh, I'd gone down to vote with my mum and dad uh, at the Warrigal uh, Shire offices and the front page of the um, papers that day said that Keating was going to lose. And yep. and I just, not, not a member of the Labor Party, not involved in politics at all, I just literally walked up to a complete stranger and said, can I give you a hand? Because I just thought, I've got to do something. Like, I, I yeah, have to do something. Can't let this happen. No, exactly, you know, uh, and ended up handing out for the whole day. Um, and so seeing Keating then, you know, win that election that night and then go on and, you know, be in government for another three years was um, very affirming for a young yeah. person in politics, right? Um, for you as a young woman, seeing a female, a woman prime minister, just explain to, to us what, what, did that, what does that mean for you and for, genera for your generation? I mean, I think more than anything it just sort of, 
I mean, people constantly say that the breaking of the the glass ceiling, but it does because it's it's someone you can see that has actually done it. Um, And in a way, and what I think is hopeful for for future generations as well is that you don't, it's not this big singular thing that 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 happened, but it's the start of a normalcy um, for women that it is normal for for a woman to be the leader of the party or to be prime minister um but i mean as as the first woman i i just got completely sucked in was just you know like i think it was it was just fantastic it was empowering and it and it made you um feel like it was very easy to just join and be be a part of politics there wasn't this huge um this gender gap even though obviously at the same time she said, faced horrendous um uh, gendered comments um and the way she was treated in the media um but at the you know it it still provided that that ability that it was politics was open to women more than anything plenty of young people i get the sense god and i feel like an old bastard now when i'm calling young the young people today um i find that they are incredibly engaged in, you know, the national debate or even inter- on international affairs, issues like climate change, you know, uh, equality, both, you know, all th- that broad spectrum of equality, but even things like struggling to get it fit into the economy, getting a job, yeah. holding down a job, having better yeah. afford a house, that kind of stuff. Um, what I don't see though is um, a lot of people then making the connection that government is a process upon which you can create the change that you want to seek and therefore don't involve themselves in what I call the democratic process, whether they join the Labor Party or the Greens or the Liberal Party or, or, yeah. or to solve those problems. You chose that path. Um, I chose that path when I was younger. Why do you think others aren't choosing that path? I mean, I I personally think we have uh, have a real failure in our our civics education in Australia. Honestly, I think that um, people. I mean, as I said, I I was very I grew up being very engaged in politics, so I didn't really have a choice. I didn't. I, I was. I My mother ensured that I was educated in it. Um, but the majority of Australians don't, and I think it's becoming less and less common. I mean, in school, you learn about here's the green room and the red room in the in the parliament. You've got no idea what that means. Um, but more importantly, you don't actually understand that the power, the effect, you know, that you are electing a representative and that representative res- represents you uh, and the ability to influence that. But even more, just about our party system, we don't teach. I mean, we have a, you know, very clear party system in Australia. Um, we, I, I think... There should be an a opportunity or, or it should be sort of within the the education system that people who are in year 11 or 12 are hearing from a representative of each party or are hearing um, the difference of ideas and that it's okay to have these different ideas and these are the different ideals um, that each party represents um, and seeing that by joining a party, you're actually going to be able to be part of change and, and you're pushing a certain agenda. The majority of people just don't don't even think about it because they've never been taught to, to how the system works or, or and the impacts of parties. It's why we see so many people just 
vote the way their parents vote because it's kind of they don't want to pay attention they've never been taught and I think it starts at a much younger age in having a really broad conversation about our political system and an open conversation not just sort of here are the how the system works this is how a piece of legislation goes from here to there because no one will remember it when they're 12 years old and they're getting <laughs> taken down to Canberra um but actually going into the in-depth mechanics of our party system. One of the interesting things that came out of um, our experience of launching the field program um, in Victoria and creating the Community Action Network was, and going out and you know just speaking to Labor supporters, and by that I mean people who just historically voted Labor but never been involved in the political process, um, that... W- when we spoke to those people and with the goal of recruiting them into the field program, into becoming volunteers, um, you know, a lot of them said when we surveyed them at the end of the, at the end of each of the campaigns, we do a sort of big evaluation thing and get it, um, you know, local chapters of the can and everyone, the organisers sit down with all the volunteers and just ask them about how that the whole experience was and what they want to do next, that kind of stuff. Um, the question where we asked is, you know, how did you first get involved and why? A lot of the times people said, well, I didn't know how to get involved. Like no one's, yeah. ever, no one's ever asked me before. And what we were astonished by was, you know, in that very first cohort of volunteers in the 2013 campaign, you know, 65% of those volunteers were not members of the Labor Party. And so you'd then think over the next sort of two or three cycles that that number would fall. It didn't. It's held mm. up. The Community mm. Action Network has consistently been outnumbered by non-party members um, that have, you know, uh, knocked on doors and made calls for a political party that they're not members of but are super motivated about that shared purpose, about creating change. And a lot of them would say, I just didn't know that you could do this. I just, yeah. you know, I didn't know who was doing this. And it was only when I got a phone call from a field organiser or it was only when I got knocked on the door by a volunteer or it was only when I signed up at a street stall at my local supermarket that I uh, and got a call that I came to these events and next minute I'm, you know, I'm the door knocking captain for the Bendigo Community Action Network, like... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, like, we people don't know. and But I also think because, I mean, you said people care about singular issues, you know, they care about climate change or housing affordability. Um, and life is so constant and busy now and it is about connecting to that issue, what, what is actually impacting that that person and then having that, connection between well if i want this to change i need the government to change and and that whether it's the liberal party or the labor party but this is how you know this is for my issue to to change i need a change of government and they're just there is a real lack of of connection between wanting something to change and changing the government which we we've we constantly sort of see people go out and thousands of people around climate change um but the, there, there needs to be that, that greater connection. With, this is then how, how to progress that further. And it's a, it actually is a, you're right, because it's a beautiful thing. I mean, that gets, that's why we don't do issue-based organising where we do electoral organising, because it's that yeah. umbrella of change of government that brings everyone yeah. together. Uh, whereas if you do focus on, and there's nothing wrong with issue-based organising, um, I think people should do that if they want to create change on a particular issue. But from a party perspective, um, you can get yourself into a bit of uh, a, um, a bit of a bind if you just try and campaign on one or two particular yeah. 
Well, because then you're, everyone's got different issues. You actually, as a as a major party, need to be an umbrella for a, a huge amount. You you want the majority of Australians to believe that they fit into your box. So it's not just going to be one or two two issues. And sometimes it's not going as far as people want you to go. But uh, I think getting that step and get changing that government is about compromise and getting there. I asked Terry Butler when she was on the show last week, when she first got involved in Labor politics, how she sort of navigated her way through the various doors and corridors that are presented to someone um, in their, when they first get involved in this beast of an organisation that's been around <laughs> for such a long time. It is the oldest political party in this country and the oldest social democrat party yeah. in, the, in the world. So we've, we've got, we've got um, form. Um, <laughs> How did you manage to uh, navigate your way through the party when you first started to get involved? And the other the follow-up question is, how did you work out what you wanted to do or how did you work out how you wanted to make a contribution to the party and what your, how did you align your skill sets with what you think the party needed? I think when I first joined, um, I, I do, and, I, and it's only because I'm reflecting on it, I think seeing my sister being at essentially working in the machinery element of, of the party made it sort of less, uh, I didn't really think about it much. I, I sort of just, I, I joined, I was very keen, um, but I do think a key part of that was having really fantastic mentors around me and people who sort of took me under the wing. A lot of them were were male. I mean, that's that's the majority of, of the um, kind of machinery element in, in the party at the moment. And I think that was critical in being able to of get both being taught, um, whether it's elements of the campaign or elements around ballots or, you know, the very, the very integral uh, party um, machinery. And um, so I think having fantastic mentors and, and that's something we really need to focus. The, there's obviously a, a big focus on on having female mentors for, for women coming up in the party, but I, I do think there's actually needs to be just as much of a focus around having um, male mentors as well, because if we are wanting to, to change the party, um, that's sort of where we need to infiltrate. Um, but <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that was a key part of it. Um, I sort of, I think I was probably a bit naive, to be honest, as well. Like I, I grew up, I, I just sort of um, pushed my way through um, and um, uh, kind of got there. But I also, um, I... I don't know if I ever made a distinct choice to sort of go through that campaigning or, or machinery element, but I think the fact that we've been in um, opposition for about 10 years in New South Wales meant at the time that's where a lot of the, when you joined Young Labor, um, uh, that was where a lot of the opportunities came. Um, and then, I, I mean, I I also got a lot of opportunity. I became New South Wales Young Labor president, so I was sat on admin and had a lot of interactions with the union movement um, as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if if there's any clear answer. I mean, I think I was both fortunate to know, know people had gone through it, had great mentors, slightly naive, um, but at the end of the day, 
I think I'm probably still an exception, not the rule. Um, and that's sort of something that we need to, to put a lot more focus into. You're only the second woman to hold the position of National Assistant Secretary of the Party and uh, we have to go back to the 1990s, I think, to when the um, first woman was to break that. Handy broad. I, have, I haven't met her, but I have. <laughs> so it, it was Candy Broad. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, there you go. Who went on to become a, um, a minister in the Victorian yeah. Labor, uh, Labor government? Yeah. Candy Broad, there you go. Um, <laughs> And we still not had a woman actually hold the position of national secretary or campaign director. Yeah. Um, what do you, why do you think it's taken so long for um, senior campaign roles to be filled by women, not just in the national secretariat, but right across the country? They're few and far between. I feel like almost going the opposite of what I've just said in sort of how my pathway was through. It is, it is still very hard for um, women to go through that um, that machinery element, like it, it relies on, I think there's two things. One, there's no rule book to the to the Labor Party and sort of learning it very early on and the experience and what other people teach you um, and sort of the mentorship and relationships are critical, whether you're, you're a woman or a male, that, that's that's critical to getting in into that, um, into those positions within the party um, and we it is still a quite a, a blokey environment. And as much as I say I sort of um, felt eased, you often will you find yourself standing there going, oh, I'm standing here with, I mean, I think I, when I was New South Wales Young Labor President, I was also sort of, um, I sat around and I was the only woman from any any other state, including all the other, you know, various groups within, within all the different parties, I was pretty much the I was the only woman, um, and so as you sit there and go, okay, it's it is still a very male dominated um, environment, and until we change that, I think we need to change it very early on um, because it's it's hard to come into the. I mean, you just don't come into these positions at a later point if you haven't been involved in in the party and built those relationships and and gained all that experience, um, it's very hard to get in through these positions um, without that. And so it's that really early investment when people join the party, um, mentorship, bringing them through um, and being not just sort of in a campaign element, but the actual sort of mechanics of of a party, of the different factions of uh, and having that involvement is going to be critical to be able to to change things you said a key uh, phrase there relationship building and i think about just as you were talking then i i think about moments uh, you know in organizing we seek to intentionally enable people to build relationships with one another the people that we bring into yeah. into the community action network or whatever the hell you're trying to organize right um, moments like one-on-ones and 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 house meetings and events and doing actions together these are all intentional moments where people get to know each other discover what their shared interests are what their different interests are what their resources are that kind of stuff right and work out ways to build commitment to one another there are incidental moments in the labor party that i think where relationships are being built and they're primarily at the exclusion of women um, for example, this is an, this is an, a, a, yeah. an anecdote, but I think it's it, this must get replicated a thousand times every week. Um, 
uh, <laughs> I was going to say last week, couldn't be last week because we were better <laughs> this, but pre-COVID, I remember um, going to a, uh, a dinner that was reasonably exclusive, uh, organised by a, a think tank or something, but primarily everyone in the room was Labor people or trade unionists or people on the left. And the gender balance in the room was quite good, okay? There probably were more men, but there was, yeah. um, there was a lot of women in the room out of the sort of 20 people in there. Once the dinner had finished, um, I noticed that there was a conversation that was going on by a senator or someone, a male uh, person, uh, politician, who started talking about um, numbers um, and sort of factional makeup and all that kind of stuff. And no women were involved in that conversation. And it, I don't know how the hell that conversation just happened and how it peeled away from the rest of the group, but just by osmosis, it excluded all the women in the room. Yeah. And I saw someone get up uh, and walk up and deliberately break into that conversation, a woman broke into that conversation, which kind of threw everyone a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of thought, yes, more of that, like and less of the that exclusionary conversation and more of the bringing people together. And I, I, I wonder if there are intentional ways in which we can force the issue for that to stop happening and actually start to create, you know, diverse moments of interaction amongst genders, amongst, you know, ages, amongst um, geography, uh, people yeah. of colour, the, the whole, the, the, you know, the rainbow of um, what our party should be. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, that's, I think that's quite a common um, uh, sort of experience as well is, is very, without anyone realising there's this sort of very serious kind of conversation happening about the mechanics of the the Labor Party and it ends up you're looking around and it's usually very male dominated because they've all come up through and it, it is the only way to break through that is kind of very intentionally having the confidence to sort of get up and go hey I'm, I'm just going to sit here or I'm going to be part of this conversation as well which is a hard thing to do it's not it's not easy and so I do think we need to start having that um finding those intentional ways to both alert it sort of when it when it does happen but sort of the intentional ways at the start to include women in those conversations um, because then it will become more natural to actually be part of that broader conversation um, anyway and and there's sort of no easy answer other than very you know actually sitting there and, and intentionally going who's on this you know who's in this conversation and and bringing it up do we i mean the aa rules have shown that um it's um proven a success in terms of the pre-selection of candidates um yeah. to top for public office for the party um and i note though there are you know long ways to go we're not we're not there yet um but when we look at say party officials or parliamentary staff, um, which I would imagine is certainly party officials are mostly dominated by the blokes. Um, parliamentary and staff. And staff, yeah, yeah okay, right. It's, yeah. Been, it's been a while since I've walked the, the halls of power. <laughs> um, so it was when uh, I was there. Um, sh do we need to introduce um, AA-type rules there as well in terms of the way that we employ staff? They do in the States. Um, yeah. I think it's definitely a conversation we need to have. Um, uh, and how we do it. I mean, there's no easy answer of how to how to do it, but there's also no easy answer to start to make this change as well. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think there needs to be 
whether it's AA, whether it's sort of a, a element of AA on on and different elements within in the party, which I know is starting. I mean, there's kind of AA requirements on some. Um, I know the New South Wales Admin Committee has has that, but I I think broadening that into to some of those executive elements, and then also um, having that conversation around staffing as staffing's hard i don't know you know it's it because obviously each member has their different start staff um but you know whether it's having one one senior person in in that office needs to be a female or or um there's a lot of different ways we could do it but i think we definitely need to start having that um conversation because even i mean in with obviously the recent events this year in in parliament house um you do notice when there are more women around it's less likely uh for those events uh to be tolerated or or to happen um and so it's definitely a a very serious conversation that we need to start having uh turning to some of the aspects of the work that you do now as the national um assistant secretary i want to get your thoughts on um on um, field organizing to start with because obviously this is primarily what this show can be about, but we'll go, we'll, we'll go to some other areas as well for the folks at home. Um, yeah. Starting with what organising, what does that mean to you? I mean, I think broadly it's building a, a um, building momentum for, for a cause or for, for an outcome. And it's, it's building um, a massive of people who have, have commonalities and, um, but in doing that, it's finding what actually drives, and I think this goes back to those single issues, what drives every single person, what, how does their life, how is their life impacted, but how can you turn that, that issue into something that is motivating for change um, and being part of that, that broader change, so building, building that momentum. The party's obviously been embracing the practices of field organising uh, mobilising volunteer capacity to, to direct voter contact actions like phone banks and door knocks now for well, since 2010. I think the first time that anyone, any Labor Party volunteer picked up a telephone and spoke to a voter was the South Australian election uh, in 2010. Um, and I know that the, the strategies and the tactics and the timing of those tactics do vary from branch to branch across um, across the across the, the party. Yeah. But we still don't have like a we still don't have a national uniform field program um, where there is sort of a at, at either at a federal or at a state level um, that we have sort of I guess a centrally coordinated but locally executed program where it's all happening fairly si- on a similar timeline yeah. um, w- is there a focus at the national secretary to embark on on this mission and I, sorry and before I ask that question I should give acknowledgement to previous national and assistant secretaries of the national secretariat who have done their level best to get yeah. there and we have come a long way but i just I, I want to get a sense from you about how are we going in this journey are we getting any closer yeah i mean it's it's not an easy sort of sort of task getting broad coordination and agreement throughout um all the different states but we do have have a lot of different um success stories within each of of the states um and i think while there are a lot of elements that are done differently there are also a lot doing this that are the same so um i mean i think core to this it is 
it is sort of creating that national coordination and national timeline, but it's about bringing um, bringing those elements of commonality together um, and sort of pretty much demonstrating we're all we are broadly doing a very similar thing. Why don't we we put it into um, uh, something that's a bit coordinated? There's always going to be variations from from state um, to state, but I do think um, we can work. And sort of we are in the process of working to, together to bring that um, and have sort of a coordinated um, approach and timeline to the whole thing. And uh, it, it'll be tested whenever the federal election uh, happens. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't make it easy when you're, you're sitting there going, well, some people might not even be able to, to go door knocking or to, <laughs> to stand at a street store. What does a piece of material mean? Are people not going to take it because of fears you're passing i mean there's a whole i mean that's i mean exactly that i don't want to unpick that scab but uh, like we've we've had a bunch of ballots uh, elections at a state and territory level in the last uh well since covid first uh the pandemic began um are you sitting down with those um field people and getting a sense of what worked and what didn't work under these conditions of um, lockdowns and restrictions and, and the like? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, I mean, we've had, we had a, we've had a federal by-election, we've had um, two state elections, we've had council elections. Um, so there's a lot of um, experience and, and sort of very, um, a lot of information that we we can use to to sort of readapt and sort of prepare in a in a COVID environment um, how we how we campaign and what are the different mechanisms that that we use. But um, it definitely there's a lot of conversations having happening about how we prepare for that because I think it's it's inevitable in one way or another that there's going to be restrictions when the election happens. Turning to data better part of two decades now, I think the party's had a very strong commitment to embracing the role of data and analytics um, uh, to test campaign strategies, you know, uh, drive efficiencies in our campaign work. Um, and I think back to sort of like the experiments we ran in like that 2013, 2014 cycle um, that confirmed that, you know, persuasion conversations between a volunteer and a voter was more impactful than, than a mail piece or you know, it was data analytics that identified the more effective ways in which we can build our volunteer capacity. So, you know, we, we've become very much more reliant on on data and how it can shape the way that we campaign. Um, what's the party's ambitions in this space as we head into the next cycle of campaigns? Because you think about it, you know, we've got a Fed any moment now. Um, South Australia, Victoria, go next year. New South Wales, early the year after. So the next 17 months, you know, we've got some pretty big campaigns. Um, are you guys gearing up to, you know, test new stuff? I, I know you don't want to give away any trade secrets, but I just want to get, <laughs> particularly for our opponents, but I just want to get a sense of what where, where's the party focusing on in, in, in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think data is just, and, and analytics are just becoming more and more important, whether it's um, on field or whether it's on digital um, as well, and then also how the, how the two intertwine um, as well. But we're definitely looking at at. at things that we can test, things that we can sort of um, confirm um, and, and trialling new new mechanisms in, in our campaigning um, and seeing their effectiveness um, to be able to use for this election and, and for future elections. But I, I definitely think in campaigns um, we're just becoming more and more um, reliant on, on sort of data and it's playing a bigger 
bigger role. Um, obviously, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, we've had polling issues and everything like that, but um, it, it plays a really crucial role in being able to, de- to de- determine how we campaign and what's the most effective way. It's funny you say that, you know, because when I think of data analytics, I never think of polling. I never, ever think of polling. And so when people say, oh, you know, the data, blah, 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 and, you know, they run it down, I go, what are you talking about? And they'll go, oh, the polls are just so bad. And I'm like, oh, yeah. oh the polls. And they are different. They're very different. Like they are. Um, uh, but then, you know, there's always that element of um, you are relying on, on, on similar databases for that, that information. Yeah, I, I guess so. I just sort of think, I mean, I think polling's been around for eons, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it, it, it's constantly evolving. Uh, I think that the, um, I know I kind of t- take a money ball approach to data and analytics. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I would, and, and I love baseball, so I'm less likely to look at the predictors of whether the Red Sox are going to win the remaining 11 games of the regular season and whether we'll make October baseball. I hope we do. I'm more looking at the metrics of how well the players are hitting or how well the pitchers are pitching, you know, that kind of yeah. granular analytics of the, the operators in, of the field as opposed to voter sentiment. I've always just sort of felt, well, you know, the, the poll is ba- a poll is just basically taking the temperature of a patient at a certain point in time and, yeah. it, and it can always change. No, I, and I think that is right and I think over time we – you know, parties and political parties are using, are rethinking how they they look at data. And it's not necessarily, um, sometimes it's what it doesn't tell you as well or or what's missing um, uh, that is most useful. Um, But there's, it's not relying on it of who's, who's going to win the election, but also, but more what, what it, what is the sentiment out there? Well, I remember a moment in one of the, I won't say what campaign it was, but, you know, I was on <laughs> the um, sort of the, the morning strategy committee meeting, right? And we're in the last two weeks of the campaign and one particular, or maybe it was even later than that, it might have been the last week, and a poll came in on a particular seat and it wasn't great. Uh, and they were, oh, you know, everyone was ro- oh, rolling their eyes. Oh, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I said, what are you going to do about it? Like literally three Two days. Two weeks out. There's yeah. not much you can do. Yeah, what are you talking about? Why are you getting upset about it? Like it is what it is. Like it's just like why don't we just look on, look after things that we can control as opposed to things we can't control. Yeah. We can get a little bit obsessed about it. And I think journalists. Yeah. Get hyper obsessed. And I think because it's the thing they can see that they can then go off and, and um, they don't see the whole nuts and bolts of a campaign or the various different elements they just see. A polling number um uh, and so so they use it but we also just constantly look at the 2pp which just like is has its whole, whole lot of it, its own issues anyway um uh so it, there there's definitely an obsession into it and it's not necessarily not necessarily reporting on it in the most accurate way either no I um we could go on and on about getting getting, getting <laughs> shoot sh- sh- off the limit about polling, but we, um, w- let's move on. Um, so we are coming to the end of a, a current federal election cycle, um, and technically the um, um, the prime minister, if he could get off his holidays, couldn't go visit the governor general at any moment. 
Um, how do you plan for a campaign that isn't a fixed term? Because I feel like that we're now having more and more state elections that are based on fixed terms, which I, I personally think they're great. And I think that we should have that for all of our elections. Have it my way. I, I'd like to have a federal election every four years and then all the states go on the opposite four years. So every two years, every state poll goes and then the, uh, the next two years later is the next federal election, the next year, so on and so forth. That would be my dream scenario, but... Anyway, that's not really that relevant to what we're talking about. Um, how, how, do, how do you plan in a scenario where you don't know the date? I mean, I think any uh, opposition campaign would, you know, very much be delighted if we had fixed terms. Um, so I agree with you on that point. And Lisa, it's just working out what, what are you're preparing for the earliest moment, I think is the reality. At the, We don't really have control when it's going to be, be called. At the moment, it could be called any day till May. So it's making sure that we're prepared and we're sort of sustainably working um, to be able to go if if he calls it this year, but also be able to, to have that longevity over to, to next year. Um, and it's frustrating, but you you just sort of you you keep that that ground based momentum um, and just make sure that you're you're as prepared as possible. Framing the narrative for an election campaign, you know, an observation or a criticism, depending on how you want to frame it, of past campaigns was there was a lack of clarity on a central message. Um, but when I think about trying to frame up a campaign going to this one, it almost feels like it's redundant because the campaign's basically going to be about the pandemic right or it's going to be there's going to be this shit cloud hovering over the campaign that will be the pandemic and it just depends on when it's well actually no actually i want to hear your answer on this is this (laughs) is this an opportunity for labor or is this a constraint for our campaign i mean i i think there is no doubt that there's going to be it's a very different it's a very different campaign environment than we're used to there's no clear air and one way or another, it is going to be masked in in COVID, um, and in a way that's a that's a known quantity. So you know we're able to to plan around that. Um, I think a few months ago, when it you know everything was going smoothly, maybe maybe it was a challenge for us. But definitely after the last few months, uh, it's a growing opportunity for us. Um, uh, because at the end of the day, we're we're not the federal government, we're not Scott Morrison, so uh, we are able to to look at his decisions um, and and campaign off off the sort of back and forth ambiguity that, that he constantly has around what he's going to do, whatever he thinks is most polit- politically popular at the time. But um, definitely, I you know I think we're probably in between. It, it's both an opportunity for us, but it, we're also. Uh, not the government in a pandemic. So in that sense, it is also a challenge. It is remarkable when you think about it, though, because like um, Justin Trudeau was returned, albeit in a minority government Mm. um, this week. Most Western liberal democracies uh, that have had elections during COVID have returned the incumbent. Um, at a national and certainly at a state level here in Australia. Um, the only exception is Donald Trump and the Republicans. Yeah. Um, which just shows you how. Um, yeah. Um, but, and maybe, you know, sort of 
the first six months into the pandemic, you would have thought, oh, there's no way that Labor would will even get a sniff at a federal election. But looking at the socials, the Labor Party's, the, the national page of the um, Labor Party, IG and uh, Instagram and Facebook, you know, there's a constant theme highlighting the failures of Scott Morrison in all of the stuff you guys are putting up, um, whether it's, you know, not fulfilling key responsibilities as a leader, like the bushfires, quarantine, vaccine rollout, or, you know, he's sort of turning a blind eye or even worse, rewarding bad behaviour like Christian Porter and George Christensen and all those crazy guys. Um, You know, I I would never have thought early in the pandemic that that we would be in the hunt, but now it certainly feels like you guys are trying to latch on to Morrison as the weak link um, or the crack in this wall that we're trying to, to trying to break through, and even after maybe even after the 2019 campaign when they won, you would have thought the strongest asset for the Conservatives is Scott Morrison, but maybe that's not the case now. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, um, Morrison has has definitely made himself the captain of the ship. So, as in 2019, when when they were all, were successful, and and you know he he pulled out a something that they never no one ever thought he could do which is is win that election um at the same point when he's uh making his decisions at the moment or or lack of decisions when um there is constant clarity when they're stuffing up elements of the the vaccination you know at the end of the day it lands with him it doesn't um and he's made himself such a the linchpin of the the whole government and of the Liberal Party at the moment that any poor decision or, or any sentiment is linked with with him. So, um, I think he's put himself in that situation to 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 be, to be able to um, open himself up to to the critic any sort of criticism that he is getting. Um, it's very sort of easily landing with him solely. Uh, do you want to make a prediction on when you think the election will be called? And, I, and I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> uh, um, listen, that I we could we we could go any time, as we said. Um, uh, so there's there's probably a likelihood it could go this year, um, but I think there is a higher likelihood of it going at the start of next year. Uh, how early? February, March, I'd say. I don't think it'd go earlier than that. It's interesting because... Next year. South Australian elections in March, mid-March. March, yeah. So it's going to be... Um, it's going to be interesting with the South Australian election. So whether it's... Yeah. I'd say if it is March, it'd, it'd be at the start, end of February, very early March. If you factor in the the... At what stage the country will be in dealing with the the pandemic, hopefully the tail end of the pandemic. Um, you know, if the country reaches eighty percent double dose by when, when's that supposed to happen? Like late late November, it's, early December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you reach eighty percent, then well, by the the national cabinet's national plan is that we're all supposed to open up. But in doing so, that means states that haven't really had um, 
uh, outbreaks like we have had in New South Wales and in Victoria and the ACT. Um, so states like Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, WA, those states may be reluctant to open up, but apparently, yeah. you know, there are these premiers have made an agreement at the, na- at the national cabinet level. So if they do do that, then the and we don't wish this upon anyone, but the, what the modelling is telling us is that that, that's, that is going to increase, um, you know, COVID, um, uh, COVID patients and put stress on the health uh, care system in those states. Uh, and I'm thinking about Queensland where government really is won or lost at this point in time. Yeah. Um, what kind of backlash will happen to the federal government because it's their... It's their policy to, for us to open up. And really, I mean, we had um, uh, uh, Terry Butler on last week and she was talking about how, particularly outside of metropolitan Brisbane, a lot of the state has kind of been inoculated from the experiences that, you know, certainly your guys, you guys are having in Sydney yeah. and we're having here in, in Melbourne. Um, for that to happen, all of a sudden realise that, oh, people are getting COVID and people, you know, people unfortunately will die. Um, th- th- so that, that experience sort of plays out over the Christmas period into January... February, you're Scott Morrison, and all of a sudden, you know, your core state, how good is Queensland? Uh, not that great when uh, there's COVID cases going through the roof. You know, do you call a poll then? Because he's in a, posi- a bit of a position where he could get a backlash. I just wonder, when do, if you're Scott Morrison, when do you go? It's a, no matter what, between now and, and sort of May, it's going to be a balancing act. You're going to win, you know, it's never going to be perfect because we also don't know what's going to happen. Um, only time will tell once once we do start to open up with a, a certain level of vaccination rate, even, you know, within whether it's within New South Wales or within Victoria. We don't know what the, I mean, the modelling predicts that there will be a peak um, in cases and, and hospitalisations till it sort of stabilises. Um, and there are states that just, uh, living, you know, WA is just living a normal life. Like every everything is 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 normal. So why would they want uh, COVID? You know, yeah. you're opening up a system, you're opening up your health system to to cases of COVID. So I don't think there's an easy answer when you do it because it's sort of every also every state's on a different trajectory because some have obviously just. I mean, New South Wales and Victoria have just had the virus, whereas um, others are just have been able to avoid it or, or um, maintain it. So I don't think there's an easy answer. No, no, no there's not. But it, I mean, I guess it gets to our original point is that it's probably best that we just do have fixed terms and it takes it out of your yeah. hands and it is what it is. And you just go to the polls and say to the electorate, all right, I've done yeah. my best, re-elect me. If not, well, fair enough. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I'm a big supporter of big terms, fixed terms. Much think, easier in planning a campaign. I think it actually requires a change in the constitution, which it does. Is it notor- does notoriously difficult yeah. to get up. So unfortunately, I don't think it's ever happened. Yeah. happened. In fact, I think, think Hawke tried it. Oh, I'm not sure. Because yeah, it, it's not. So you'd have to, you know, because I know we you'd, you'd have to win government and then take it to a to a referendum. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Now, Jen Light, uh, you said to me at the start of the show, there's no way we're going to get through 45 minutes. I just want to point out this has been 56 <laughs> minutes. 
Time flies when you're having fun. Indeed. And it's a, tomorrow's a public holiday, so this is basically my Friday. So I'm, I'm, just, up for, oh. I'm just up for a yak now. You're lucky I didn't crack open some whiskey and just put my feet up. This is the... Um, is this the the AFL? Sorry, I'm from New South Wales. So I'm not an AFL watcher. So this is South the w- AFL public holiday. The the famous Daniel Andrews. Tell tell us if you're in New South Wales without telling us if you're in New South Wales. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Uh, it is the public holiday that the uh, brought to you by your friendly Andrews Labor government uh, tomorrow. Um, even though there's no grand final parade. No parade, no. no. There'll be some type of other parade probably from neo-Nazis <laughs> and anti-vaxxers, no doubt, but uh, no parade of footballers anyway. Um, and then the finals on Saturday, I think. Um, yeah. Two teams are playing in a ground in Perth, I'm led to believe. Jen, thank you very much. For, sorry, thank you so much for coming on uh, the uh, the show today. Um, you, uh, If this was a um, game of uh, NFL, you're in the red zone. You're trying to score touchdowns right now. So you're incredibly busy because I know you've got an election coming up and we do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come on the show and have a chat to us. Um, and we no, wish, thank you for having me. We wish you the absolute best of luck for the upcoming campaign and uh, you, you, you and the team get elbow and everyone else uh, over over the line. Just hoping. Hey there, thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.